Hello and welcome to this episode of Before Economics, the history of political economy. One of the most pervasive assumptions about public life today is that politics can and should be rational. Indeed, the leading rationale for democracy is public deliberation. The idea is that citizens can inspect the different policies and claims offered by political candidates and parties and then choose those that appear best. Parliament, Congress or whatever public body exists can then deliberate in its own fashion according to the procedures set out in a constitution. The result is expected to be laws carefully pondered by lawmakers who have themselves been carefully pondered by the citizens who elect them. In addition, we have numberless experts, such as economists and public policy analysts, who recommend new laws along with reforms to existing laws and institutions. Whatever the value of emotion, affect and aesthetics, they are not normally considered foundational to public life. Today's thinker, Adam Smith, set out a directly contrary account of the foundation of human society. This may appear to be a strange claim in view of Smith's status as the arch-economic rationalist or neoliberal. However, for at least half a century, historians have been attempting to demolish that mythical account of Smith and replace it with one that possesses historical substance. For the book that made Smith's reputation in his own lifetime and which provided the infrastructure for his later thought was titled The Theory of Moral Sentiments. The work was published in 1759, while The Wealth of Nations, the book for which Smith is today best known, was published in 1776. It should be noted that Smith published five further editions of The Theory of Moral Sentiments in 1761, 1767, 1774, 1781 and 1790. Smith could therefore have expected that readers of his second text would be familiar with his first, or at least know of its existence. Such an assumption would explain why Smith did not explicitly set out his account of human nature in The Wealth of Nations. After all, his account was extremely sophisticated and developed over more than 40 chapters, hardly a theory to be condensed easily. Whatever the reasonableness of this decision in Smith's lifetime, it has profoundly distorted our understanding of his work. By the end of the 18th century, Smith's Wealth of Nations was being read in isolation of the theory of moral sentiments as if it were a self-contained work, and hence in ignorance of his moral theory. That practice has continued until today. The task for this episode is, therefore, to recover Smith's account of human nature, his account of human reason as based on the moral sentiments that we experience when we live with other humans. How did Smith come to write such a book? Keith Tribe explains. Well, Adam Smith was born in 1721 in a small coastal town in Scotland, Kirkcaldy, and he lived a lot of his life there. But early as a student, he went to Oxford, spent six years in Oxford, went back in the late 1740s back to Edinburgh, where after his Oxford education, he became very friendly with a number of important characters there, one of whom was David Hume, the famous philosopher, and in the early 1750s, he became professor of what they called moral philosophy in Glasgow. And he worked in Glasgow as a professor from the early 1750s until 1763. And during that time, he lectured on all sorts of things. We don't really know what he lectured on precisely because all of his notes and papers were destroyed when he died. But what we do know is that in 1759, he published a book based on some of these lectures, which is called Theory of Moral Sentiments. Now, in fact, Smith only ever published two books in his life, Theory of Moral Sentiments in 1759, and then the thing which is known for today, Wealth of Nations in 1776. But 
It was the book published in 1759 that made him famous in the Scotland of his day and in Britain. And this book is not about sentiments in the sense we'd think today of sentimentality and so forth. It's about how human beings or why human beings act morally, why humans behave the way they do. In a sense, why they are social. And you could say the theory of moral sentiments is, in a sense, Smith's sociology. It's a kind of account of how individuals become social through their actions and how that's what he counts as moral, as in the old idea of moral sciences. The moral sciences, the sciences of human action, of right human action and good conduct. If we follow the suggestion that Smith's theory of moral sentiments represents his attempt to produce what we would think of as a sociology of human society, then we can begin by asking, what is at the core of human nature? Smith's answer is striking. Humans desire connection with one another, to see the world the way others see it, and for them to see it as we do. The reason we make our friends watch the same videos that make us laugh, Smith suggests, is because we get pleasure when we see that they respond the same way that we do. It is the pleasure of mutual sympathy. For the same reason do we experience frustration or disappointment when our friends don't laugh when we expect them to. And it is the same reason that explains why we look away from an embarrassing scene, because we feel something of the embarrassment that would rise inside us if we were in that situation. Of course, we are not in the same situation as the person who spills their coffee down their shirt or the person who is publicly rejected by their lover. It is only that we imagine ourselves in that situation. Giving sympathy relies on the imagination to bring us into contact with the feelings of others. Once we have that imaginative contact, we evaluate their behaviour. If the person who spills coffee on themselves bursts into uncontrollable tears, then we are likely to think that they have overreacted. While if the person who is rejected in public simply walks away to ponder the fickle nature of love, then we are likely to think that they have behaved with propriety. This is one half of the process by which norms or standards of conduct are formed. People observe the situation of other people and judge whether or not they have behaved appropriately. The other half of the process relates to the way that we receive the sympathetic judgment of others. We all know that just as we judge our fellow citizens, we too are judged by them. But now the circumstances are different, for Smith insisted that we always feel our own situation more keenly than the sympathetic observer. Whatever reaction we have, therefore, it needs to be diminished if it is to accord with the judgment of our fellow citizens. I may feel like crying when I spill coffee on my shirt the same day that my dog has died, but those observing me would hardly be able to understand and approve of such a reaction, so I suppress my tears for the sake of keeping their approval. The result is that humans are constantly evaluating themselves through the eyes of others. While this may sound false or artificial from the perspective of today, Smith was unburdened by theories of authenticity or identity politics. He was attempting to both describe and prescribe a mode of conduct that would allow humans to live together in all their complexity and difference. Smith was also attempting to provide a defence of commercial society. If we remember Rousseau's account of the way commerce deformed the human character as found in the savage state, then we can see that Smith's argument moved in the opposite direction. To engage in commercial transactions was to engage in moral behaviour, and each time we did so, we became more practised at putting ourselves in the situation of another. Commerce rubs off our rough edges because we are daily interacting with other people and striving for the impartial perspective of the ideal spectator. From the point of view of Smith, if Rousseau's savage breathed only peace and liberty, it was because they were incapable of breathing refinement and social life. Commerce, in short, was good because it was social, 
This is perhaps the crucial dividing line between Smith and us. Smith did not think of buying and selling as representing economic activity, understood as a distinctive type of behaviour and calling on a specific type of human reason. Instead, the subject that engaged in trade and commerce was the same moral and sympathetic subject that flushed when watching someone spill coffee down their shirt or having their heart broken in public. The economic subject did not yet exist as an idea. In the next episode, we will examine how Smith used this account of human nature to explain the process by which nations grew in wealth. This episode of Before Economics was brought to you by the European Society for the History of Economic Thought. Written and spoken by me, Dr. Ryan Walter, at the University of Queensland. Special thanks to Keith Tribe. The audio engineer was Ni Adepoyubit.